Hello and welcome to night number four of 31 Nights of Frights, year three, the franchise. My name is Adam and I'll be your host. For night number four, we are going back to Elm Street. This is the 1987 Jack Shoulder directed A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. This one here is an interesting movie. It's interesting for the themes that are played out in the movie, and also as far as the fan backlash towards the film, because by by all means, it's not a bad movie whatsoever. And it's also interesting, too, as far as the backlash that actually spread onto the lead actor, Mark Patton, and, well... We'll get into that in just a moment. But on paper, if you look at Internet Movie Database, the synopsis is a teenage boy is haunted in his dreams by deceased child murderer Freddy Krueger, who is out to possess him in order to continue his reign of terror in the real world. And yes, that's exactly what the movie is, I guess. But on paper, it's a little bit deeper than that. If you have never seen A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, I highly suggest you look into the history on the movie and basically how notorious it is for being what some have called the gayest horror film of all time. Yes, there is gay themes running throughout the movie and it's pretty obvious when you're watching it. However, would I go and call it the gayest horror film of all time? No. I think the movie Sleepaway Camp might be a little bit more gay than this one if we're going to judge a movie based off of that. Um, But no, it's it's probably not. I think it's probably one of the first ones out there as far as doing that. And supposedly it was unintentional. But this one here, it definitely seems like it was intentional when you're watching it. I think the most interesting thing about this movie is that the character of Jesse, played by actor Mark Patton, he's not actually seen as being gay or anything like that, but it seems like he has a lot of gay tendencies as far as some of the things that he does and that maybe he's closeted and also that in that Freddy is representing his homosexuality more or less coming out. Um, sure, it's there and everything, but I honestly, when I saw this as a kid, obviously I wouldn't get any of that. Um, but rewatching it now, yes, it's definitely apparent that it's a very, as they said, homoerotic in like the special features. If you're watching the special features on like the Blu-ray or DVD, it's one of those movies that it's... In my opinion, it's a solid follow-up. I understand why fans of the franchise wouldn't like it, specifically because they tried to bring Freddy into the real world, and this way it's by possession of a young man. And, well, it kind of breaks the rules of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Freddy had to be pulled out of dream, the dream sequence and stuff uh, in the first film. In this one, it seems like Freddy can more or less do whatever he wants. He does appear, and he's taking over Jesse's body, and this is done in the real world as well as in the dream world. So the film kind of breaks its own rules, 
And I don't see that as a bad thing. I think it's interesting that they decided that quickly to go and sort of ignore the rules of the first film. And they managed to make a movie that I myself, I would like to think that Freddy doesn't exist in the real world or that he's even really visiting Jesse. I think he might have gotten it from Nancy's journal that's found in his room. It's established that the movie takes place five years from the first movie. And, well, okay, I understand that, but the town of Springwood does look a little bit different. School looks different, in my opinion. And I just don't know. It it doesn't entirely gel with the first film. However, I think it feels firmly rooted in with A Nightmare on Elm Street as a whole. Writer David Chaskin actually tried to do something a little bit different here, and I kind of applaud him for doing it, but at the same time, when there were articles back in the day that were written that this was a gay movie, he more or less said, oh no, that was all due to the actor, and it was due to the director and this and that. He didn't put blame on himself. And the thing about the blame game here is the fact that this movie led to the death of Mark Patton's career. He was kind of an up-and-coming actor, and this was his first lead role. And there is a documentary I recommend checking out if you want more information on A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. And that's a movie called Scream Queen, which will definitely chronicle the whole story as far as A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 better than what I could tell you about it here within you know the 10 to 15 minutes or so that I may have your ear but either way it's interesting to me that this led to the death of his career and it was mostly because he was not closeted at all he was out and open as far as his sexuality but I don't think he let it define him or anything like that But his agent at the time went and said, hey, this is bad because it shows that you can't play a straight man in any movie. Therefore, limiting his roles could lead to the death of his career. And she wanted to do a radical change and reinvention of him in his own personal life. And that's actually kind of sad. But I can understand where people would say that maybe... Mark Patton was feminine in this movie, and he was a male scream queen. He does scream, and he does kind of sound like a girl there with his scream, but I always thought that, you know, maybe he was just uh, an introvert or sensitive kind of guy in the movie, and that's why it's all the more shocking, you know, with some of the things that Freddy has him do or when Freddy possesses him, because at the very heart of this, this is a possession movie, even though it does have all those various themes going on throughout. I will say the special effects here are well done. There are some funny moments, and I don't think they're supposed to be funny as a whole, but they made me laugh, such as when it's hot in the house. And keep in mind, this is Nancy's childhood home as well. Um, I forgot to mention that, that they're living in the same house where all the events happen from the first movie. But there's one part where they say about it being so hot in there, I guess it's like 97 or something like that. And as it turns out, the birds 
start spontaneously combusting. The bird, the one of their household pet birds, actually attacks them and then proceeds to burst into flames. It's an odd scene, and it had me laughing, and I had to rewind it to actually watch it again. For them trying to do something a little bit disturbing or something like that, it didn't exactly work. But the special effects overall, I think, are handled really well. The whole movie feels much smaller scale than the first movie. We have that opening scene that is well known to a lot of horror fans, even if they haven't seen A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. And that's with Freddy driving the school bus and everything and all kinds of chaos ensues and it just so happens to be Jesse's nightmare at the beginning. And well, I think it's an alright intro and opening to the movie because we get exactly what we want. We get more of that weird dream stuff and more Freddy here at this point. Um, I just don't know if I really like the opening or beginning to the movie. I don't know. To me, it just doesn't really seem right. But we do get that intro of opening with the the dream, just like the or the nightmare, just like the first one opened with. So, and I guess that's something that every Nightmare on Elm Street film opens up with a nightmare, even though I know there's one or two that don't. But yeah, it's not a bad opening overall. I think it's important to note that Robert England's Freddy is still not quite to the Freddy that we knew or know in, I guess, popular culture and stuff like that. It's still a character in progress, and like I said, I'm not even quite sure if this is supposed to actually be Freddy, because I don't feel like Freddy was actually in the world. I feel like the whole thing with Freddy may have been with inside Jesse's head. And I really think that when you have the, the poolside attack later in the movie, I really think that Freddy's not there, but everybody's seeing Jesse and not Freddy. And it's actually something fascinating to think about, and it's a little bit of like a trippy way to do something as far as this goes. But if I had to single-handedly put on this movie what I think people had issues with is the fact that Nancy wasn't back. I think everybody was more or less expecting Nancy to show up again and that it was going to be a direct continuation, and instead here it seems more like a side story type of idea. Which is perfectly fine, but the story itself seems almost like something that should be in Freddy's Nightmares, the TV show, as opposed to actually being a in-canon film. I know Wes Craven didn't show, show up for this one. And that was mostly because he didn't see this as a franchise. He saw it as a one-off. With the success of the second film, then he was convinced otherwise. And that's what led to the long-standing Nightmare on Elm Street series that, that we have. We could go one step further and say about the idea that it's all in Jesse's head. I feel like we're seeing the story through Jesse's eyes. And it's an interesting idea, much to the way of the shared dream which would happen in A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, the shared dream sequences. It's almost a shared paranoia here, where it's a suggestion of Freddy Krueger. And it's a really fascinating way to do it. I know, I'm, I, know I got away from that topic and got back to it, but it's still something that sticks in my mind that it may in fact just be through Jesse's eyes. That whole idea of a shared fear and paranoia and everything almost reminds me of the movie Bug, which I think was a William Fredkin film 
that had Ashley Judd in it where basically he convinced everybody that there was bugs all over and they started winding up scratching themselves and cutting themselves, all kinds of things because it went under their skin and it wasn't really there to begin with. It almost reminds me of that type of shared fear and paranoia if you want to take the movie that way. You could take it as Jesse and his homosexuality you could take it as the shared paranoia. You could take it as both, even. So it is really a multi-layered film. And I think for that reason, it makes it a essential watch. Whether you enjoy the movie or not, as far as being A Nightmare on Elm Street and its sequel, it's definitely a bold choice for it to go in the direction that it went and not to actually make the same film that was made the first time around. So for that, I definitely recommend checking this one out. I don't think you should have your expectations in check as far as what this movie is or what it isn't. I think you should just view it once. And of course, if you're listening to this, you probably have seen it already anyway. So a good supplement to this film, Scream Queen, totally recommend that documentary. As I think the documentary Scream Queen gives Mark Patton the fair shake that he didn't receive with A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. And it's kind of a shame because his story is actually interesting and it's kind of sad what happened as the fallout as a result of this movie. Because this movie is actually much better than its reputation and definitely deserves a second look. And, well, I'm going to close out this episode. As a reminder... You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam underscore analyzes. And if you don't do the whole social media thing, definitely go and drop me an email at adamanalyzespodcast at gmail.com. If you have a free moment, I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave me a five-star rating at the podcast listening platform of your choice. It'll allow me to reach new listeners. And plus, I love those digital hugs. But with that being said... Be kind and good night.